This is Shop Dog Radio, episode 56, with Todd Henry. Welcome to Shop Talk Radio. I'm your host, Nick Onken, and on this show, we're bringing inspiring guests to dive underneath the hood of the creative entrepreneurial lifestyle to bridge the gap between art, commerce, and inspiration. What is up, everyone? Welcome to the show. We have Todd Henry today on from the Accidental Creative, accidentalcreative.com. I've known Todd for a handful of years, actually, since I started photography through the interwebs. We've never actually met in person. So this was the first time we got to sit down and have a good chat and we got into it. It was a great chat. He's a great guy. And I discovered the Accidental Creative probably six years ago when he, around the time that he started it. And I was very fascinated with it because he talks a lot about creative process, the different processes, the different stages that you go through as a creative in your creative journey. He has published two books, The Accidental Creative, How to Be Brilliant at a Moment's Notice, really great book. The second one is Die Empty, Unleash Your Best Work Every Day. And we talk a lot about his third book that's coming out in a few weeks, a couple weeks, actually next week, I think louder than words. And it's how to harness the power of your authentic voice. And as a creative, I've talked a lot about this myself as far as how style and point of view is what people come to you for. And that is your voice. That is what you have to say to the world. That's what you communicate through your art. And Todd breaks down how to harness this voice, how to break it down, how to cultivate it in his newest book, Louder Than Words. In today's episode, we talk about many things. A few things, we talk about the difference between pursuing creative careers in your 20s versus your 30s and how how different that is. We also talk about why fear is normal. Fear is normal because of a lot of things and you just have to deal with it and push through it and those that do succeed and we break that down. We also talk about falling into purpose paralysis. We also talk a lot about separating your work and your self-worth, which was huge in my journey as well. We talk about how to balance your creative portfolio. Then Todd describes and gives three elements of an effective, resonant voice. On a side note, I've been taking a meditation class this week, which falls into the self-development and life optimization category for the creative entrepreneur. And I will talk more about that journey as it unfolds, which has been pretty exciting. And I'm excited for the results that are to come from it. So without further ado, the one and only Todd Henry. What is this? What is up, everyone? Today, we've got Todd Henry on the show. Welcome to the show, Todd. Thanks, Nick. It's great to be here. Yeah, I'm super excited to get into it today because I have known about your work. Todd is the founder of Accidental Creative, and it's years ago. When, when did you start Accidental Creative? 2005. So 2005. It's, the ten, it's the 10-year anniversary. We're celebrating it here <laughs> around your table, the 10-year anniversary. Amazing. Congratulations. Thank you. It's, it's cool because right around 2005 is when I started kind of getting into photography and a big thing about the, like the accidental creative is diving into the creative process and really about finding your voice as a creative. And that's what I was really learning at the time. And it's been cool to see the growth and where you've come and now you're speaking everywhere. You've got your podcast and you got three books more coming, all this stuff. So we'd just love to hear from you, actually, what is 
the accidental creative um, from your perspective. And yeah, let's start with there. Yeah. So I spent most of my early career working with creative teams, teams of creative pros, right? Who were having to make it up every day, designers, writers, videographers, uh, musicians, and mm. sort of trying to help them navigate. And I was you know, sort of playing the role of like, I was told people it's like driving the family van of innovation, right? It's like yeah. turning around screaming, Hey, you kids, you know, in the back, so, you know, but, <laughs> but at the same time, like trying to lead their process, help them grow as artists and, yeah. and be the best they could be. And just, there were certain dynamics that were coming up over and over and over and certain conversations over and over again, just points of frustration, hurdles we were having to navigate. Mm. And at the same time, so I, I sort of was straddling the world of creative and strategy. And I would, you know, work with these people who are maybe in marketing or, um, you know, uh, strategy and, and brand and stuff at some, some organizations. I'd be chatting with them and they'd be talking about some of the same dynamics, right? Mm. And some of the same things that they're, they're struggling with. And, uh, you know, I would tell them, well, your problem is you're a creative, you know, these <laughs> marketers, right? You're a creative. You still don't know it. You're an accidental creative, right? You're just like my artist. You just don't know that you're a creative, but you still have to come up with ideas every day. Mm. You still have all those same pressures and the same hurdles you have to jump. And so I started taking some of what was working with these artists that I was, I was working with and, and sort of translating it and applying it to people who are kind of just you know, going to work every day, having to solve problems, work with their mind and teaching them some of the principles of how to be mm. creative, you know, that, that some of us who are artists kind of know, right. Yeah. Um, uh, sort of intuitively we've developed it over time. And so that was kind of the beginning of, of, you know, my work was just helping translate principles of how to be creative, how to come up with ideas, how to, to, um, mm. to embrace your, I guess your creative side for people who maybe didn't think of themselves as creatives. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, started doing that. It kind of grew over time, started being invited to come, you know, lead idea, idea sessions for companies. And, wow. uh, and more and more people were just saying, Hey, instead of helping us lead these idea sessions, could you just come in and talk to us about fear? You know, let's just talk about like how, because I, I feel like fear is paralyzing our organization. So anyway, mm -hmm. it just sort of emerged over time and, um, you know, sort of set of practices became codified and eventually led to the first book and the second book and the third book. And, you know, so that's kind of, you know, yada, yada, that's kind of the yada, yada version of it. But, um, yeah. Yeah. So really my, my heart has always been in helping people figure out, um, you know, who are they, what do they have to express in the world and, and to help them overcome those barriers that stand in the way of them putting great work into the world. Yeah, absolutely. That's, that's great. And at what point did you actually turn this into a business? So the business started in 2005 mm. um, and it wasn't, it wasn't a full-time business at the time. Uh, it took a couple of years to mm -hmm. kind of work up to that um, point, but I was, you know, taking vacation time, flying all over the country, doing idea sessions, you know, leading yeah. stuff. It was really pretty crazy. And, and fortunately I had, you know, the support of, of everyone around me, which is great to be mm -hmm. doing that. Um, but it really took about three or four years before it became a full-time thing. Mm. Um, and, uh, really have kind of been off to the races since then. It's been pretty amazing, um, growing like crazy. But yeah. So it's, it's been a, uh, you've had a capital job to get it all started. That's exactly right. Yeah. And, and it's, you know, I'm, I'm, <laughs> so I'm, mar I'm married, right. Mm -hmm. Uh, three kids, uh, young kids, mortgage, the whole deal, you know, mm. so it was kind of, I was in my mid thirties when, um, when I, I made the leap mm. and, uh, you know, it's a little different doing that when you're in your mid thirties <laughs> and it is, you know, when you're maybe in your twenties, when, I mean, it feels like you have a lot of responsibility, but you know, once you have other people who are completely dependent on you Absolutely. for, you know, it, it kind of changes the game, but you know, my, 
uh, incredible wife and I sort of developed a plan. We just said, listen, here's what it's going to take for us to have the runway we need for, for me to, to jump out and do this full time. And we really see a lot of potential here. And once yeah. we kind of got to that point where we felt like we had enough runway, you know, we, we just made the leap and there was no guarantee that things were going to work out. I mean, things were definitely trending in the right direction, right? But <laughs> yeah. there was no guarantee, but it was, um, pretty shortly thereafter that we realized, okay, this is not only going to work, this is going to work really, really well. And things just, it was like pouring kerosene on the fire once I went full time. So that's amazing. So yeah. speaking of fear, what fears did you have going into jumping off that cliff and going full time? Well, so I, you know, obviously I had the, the fear of, am I going to completely fall flat on my face and fail my family? Right. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, so we, uh, when we adopted our youngest, our youngest uh, child is adopted. And, mm. and when we did that, my wife decided she was going to leave her job and stay home. So I was the sole provider for the family at that point <laughs> you know, financially. And yeah. so, uh, you know, for me, I mean, I was obviously really afraid that I would, I would fail and I'd have to go find a job and, and, um, you know, who knows if I could find a job that, you know, that I loved or that I was you know, able to you know, be, be capable of, of thriving in. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, obviously that was, you know, fear of failure was, was a huge thing. Honestly, also in kind of a weird way, and this is, it's funny because I talk about these very same things. It's like doctor heal thyself, right? I talk about <laughs> these same things with creatives, you know, fear of success. You know, what happens if I'm the dog that chases the car and I actually catch the car? Am I going to, what am I going to do? Right. Um, right. and so when the first book deal came along, that was kind of what it was. I was like, wow, okay. I've kind of been chasing this thing. Um, and, and in some ways I'm kind of afraid of, okay, what's going to happen once this thing blows up? I mean, what, you know, what's going to happen to my life, to our, our dynamics here, to my clients, to all this stuff that I was, I was building. Mm -hmm. Um, and I, th I think I've just kind of come to learn that, um, that fear, that latent fear is, is normal. It's natural. Everybody feels that mm -hmm. I haven't met a single person, especially successful people. I mean, I've, I've worked with a lot of CEOs. I've talked to some really high powered people, even like some household name people and asked them like, Hey, what is, what, you know, what's going on in your world? What is your, what is the one thing you struggle with more than anything else? And yeah. the most common answer I get to that is I'm afraid that at some point people are going to pull back the curtain and realize I'm, I'm faking it. I'm making it up as I mm. go. Right. Because I think to some extent, everybody feels like they're kind of making it up as they go. They're kind of, you know, kind of faking it and that they're going to be found out. It's, you know, what they, they call imposter syndrome, right? This idea <laughs> that, um, and so I think, I think everybody feels that. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's probably what prevents a lot of people from making a big leap is, you know, what if I succeed, you know, will I be able to live up to that level of success and, and sustain it over, over the long term? So, um, those are a couple of things. And I think, I think also, I mean, realistically, I think, um, you know, beyond just kind of the, the really tactical, practical stuff. I think there's always that question of, am I, is this the right leap to mm -hmm. take? Am I doing the right thing? And I think, mm -hmm. um, we can fall into this thing of, you know, is this my, uh, you know, quote unquote calling? Is this my, my purpose? Is this the thing I should be spending my finite resources on? Yeah. Um, and you know, I write about that. I wrote about that in, in my last book. I talked about purpose paralysis because a lot of people I talk to get into this thing of like, well, I want to make sure I'm doing the right thing before I do something. And mm -hmm. What I learned from this whole experience of starting my own business was just, just make a leap, right? You can redirect, you can change course, mm -hmm. you can, you know, and make it make a good strategic leap. I mean, don't make a stupid, <laughs> right. but just make a leap. And so when people are asking me, Hey, should I start something? I'll say, listen, do you have the runway you need? Because, you know, also the other thing we, we hear from people is, well, just jump into the deep end and you'll figure it out. Well, I would never teach my kid how to swim by throwing him into the deep end, right? And saying, mm -hmm. okay, well, you'll figure it out. You know, I hope you don't sink to the bottom. I mean, that's... <laughs> 
you know, that's silly. I mean, you, you want to have a strategy. You want to, you know, kind of work your way up to it. So some people need more of a runway. And if that's what they need, great, do it, mm-hmm. go for it. You build that runway before you make the leap. But at some point you have to make the leap. You, yeah. know, you can't be building runway forever. You, know, you don't need a 500 mile runway to take off in the 747, right? Like you just, at some point you have to say, okay, enough's mm. enough. Let's, let's go yeah. for it. But different people need varying levels of, of runway. So that was the other thing I learned is just, you know, I think you have to do what it takes to get you to a point where you feel good about it. And, and then, at yeah. some point, there's always going to be a leap. Yeah, it's a calculated risk. That's right, exactly. And that calculation is different for different people. Right. Right. So right. some people, they might need a year or two years of cash in the bank before they do it. Hey, if that's what you need, go for it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, some people might need like two months expenses. Great, go for yeah. it. But you you know, especially when you're, like I was, you, you're, you have a family and you're trying to negotiate all of that. Um, you know, it's not just your decision at that yeah. point. It's about the, the people around you who depend on you as well. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, uh, for all artists taking risks, you have to include your stakeholders in the calculation. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's interesting. I mean, we talk about like fears and emotions and it's, it's very interesting how that so, so much ties into a, our creativity and our vision and B, our entrepreneurship. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, a couple of years ago, my, as I was saying earlier, my business kind of like, like plateaued out. And I was so, I got to the space where I was like seeing all the success and in, in my photography business. And it kind of like, it, it dipped a little bit. And I was so married to the identity and my self-worth was so put into my, who I was shooting, what I was shooting, blah, 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 that when things slowed down, it caused me to go into this like crazy internal spiral. Yeah. And that's what I love about what you've been talking about is that, is that process. So how can people push through the emotions and a identify the emotions that they, that go through in, in terms of creativity and entrepreneurship because art and commerce is such a huge thing. Right. Um, How can people identify those, those emotions and then push through them. Like you push through the fear of jumping off the cliff. Yeah. So I think, I think a couple of things that you, that you hit on, um, the first is that tricky channel that you have to navigate where you have to say, my work is not my worth. Mm-hmm. Um, and we hear that all the time. You are not your work. You are not what you make. And we hear those things. We're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. I know that. I know that. But when it comes down to it and suddenly people perhaps are rejecting you for a job that you really want, or maybe, you know, you, you recognize that maybe your the shine has kind of gone, you know, has disappeared from, from the work that you're doing. And I've, yeah. I may have experienced that in, in a number of ways, right. Over the last several years. Yeah. Um, that's when you sort of have to do that gut check and you have to realize, am I putting too much of my identity in what other people think about the work I'm doing versus is my identity founded in something more substantive? And is my work the expression of my identity versus me taking cues about my identity from how people receive my work? Mm. And that is a really, really tricky channel to navigate. And we all know people who are very successful and it's really clear to see that the moment you slight them in any way, mm-hmm. they get really offended and they, you know, maybe they cut off communication with you because they can't, take a breach in the dam when it comes to their, their identity. Um, and their identity is so wrapped up in the perception that other people have. And here's the thing about that for artists. Every one of us at some point is going to be rejected. Our our work is going to be rejected by others. There is a, um, there's a shelf life to popularity for our work, you know? And, and so the reality is at some point our work is going to lose its shine. Even the, the people who are at the top of the charts of what they do at some point they're, you know, so 
if your identity is rooted in something more substantive, then you can reinvent yourself. You can find new ways of express, expressing that identity because you're not fossilizing around a set of expectations that people have of you. Um, instead, you can go back, go back to the mill and, and create something new because you're creating out of a sense of identity, not mm. being shaped by your work, you know? Ooh. So I think that's, that's one thing. I think that we have to, as artists, uh, we have to ensure that we're not deriving a sense of who we are from what we make. Um, mm. Instead, what we make is an expression of who we are. As With regard to overcoming fear, I think the only tactical advice that we can implement with that is that we have to continue pushing into dark places every day. My, my friend mm. Thad Cockrell, who's a, a musician, brilliant musician, great songwriter, uh, he has a band called Leagues now. Um, he has just been plugging away in Nashville for years and years and years. Brilliant guy, um, very critically acclaimed songwriter. And he said something to me one time. I was I was talking with him at an event, or maybe I was interviewed. I can't remember how it, how it came out, but he said, "The job of the artist is to walk into dark rooms every day and turn the light on." Right? Mm. That's what you have to do. And we all have dark rooms. We all have places we're afraid to go. Uh, and if we stay in, like, imagine that you're sitting in the central lobby and there are all these dark rooms around you, doorways, and it's dark inside. You don't know what's in there. If we stay in the lobby, we're probably going to be safe. That's fine. Um, but we're also going to live a life that's probably not worth living mm. if we just stay in that place of safety our entire life. You know, the brilliant contributors are people who walk into those dark rooms and they flip the light on. They don't know what they're going to find. Maybe it'll be a man-eating lion, you know, or maybe it'll be something <laughs> really great. We don't know. So tactically, every day, I think, again, so I want to, with the strong caveat here, we hear these things all the time. Mm -hmm. It's not what we know, it's what we do that matters, right? So we hear things like, do something that scares mm. you every day, right? Okay, that's great. Thank you, Captain Obvious. I've got that. But <laughs> but we don't actually do it. We don't actually implement it. It's what we do that moves the needle, not what we know. So what are you doing today that scares you? How are you stretching yourself? How are you expressing yourself creatively in a way that is different from what you're used to? And, and how are you developing skills that stretch your muscles and force you to try to interact with the world in new ways or express yourself and new, find new forms of expressing mm. that identity, right? Because the more ways you find to express that sense of who you are, mm -hmm. the less any one of them matters in the grand scheme. Sure, you want to cut off a leg? That's great because I've got 10 more, right? No problem. <laughs> um, but if you're putting all of your eggs in one basket and, and you're deriving your identity from that, mm. of course you're going to be afraid to act because you don't want to do anything to mess that up. Yeah. You know? So yeah. I think that's the key is do something every day to push yourself into uncomfortable places mm, and actually do it and actually do it. That's right. So, you know, if you're a photographer, if you're a writer, if you're a designer, whatever it is, do something that scares you. And one really simple way to do that, Nick, is to do it when you're not on your client's dime, do it when you're not on your, even on your own dime, right? Like do it in a, a, what I call unnecessary creating, which mm -hmm. means having a place in your life where you're making stuff, you're experimenting, you're trying new things, you're, you're taking risks in a relatively low risk way. So you can kind of prove to yourself you can do it yeah. uh, over the course of time. So if you're a writer and the only time you write is when somebody's paying you to write, I guarantee you that you are eventually going to dry up on the plane. You are not going <laughs> to be a deep flowing river of insight and wisdom, right? Yeah. Because you're only creating what people are paying you, which means eventually, no matter how principled you are, eventually you will start shaping your writing to whatever people are willing to pay for. Mm. But if you have time in your life when you're writing work that nobody is ever going to see, it's just for you. It's to develop yourself, to try new things that will then inform your on-demand writing. It'll sort of keep you flowing in a healthy way, in a healthy direction. Same for photographers, same for any other kind of artist. Absolutely. Absolutely. I've always been a big fan of 
shooting what I want to be hired for. So that's right. going and creating my own work. But speaking to the doing something every day, um, we just like last year I did this uh, hundred day project. I don't yeah. know if you heard about that. Yeah. The, great, the Great Discontent was uh, featuring it. Aluna, who was just, I just had her on last week. She kind of pioneered that. We did it last year. And it actually, I learned so much from it because we were doing this mastermind uh, called the Alive Tribe. And she brought it up and I was like, well, what's one thing that I could do for a hundred days? I mean, me do one thing every day for a hundred days is... I, was a tough task right in, right. in my mind, in my mind. <laughs> That's forever. <laughs> and right. I, had, I had already kind of started doing hand-drawn type and exploring that a little bit. And I was like, this is the perfect, perfect match because mm-hmm. I can do it in two minutes. I can do it in two hours. And what it taught me was that like doing one thing every day for a hundred days, I developed a body of work and I developed a progression and it was just for me, right. you know? Yeah. I was sharing it on Instagram and now I love, it's become like a habit. It's become like, it's almost a thing and people are starting to recognize that and, and wanting it for their walls and different things like that, which is great. Yeah. So who knows what it can turn into. So to your point, doing something that's new and creative every day is, is huge. Yeah. I mean, I, I'll say that starting the podcast, you know, the Axel Creative podcast was something I did on a lark because I, Hey, there are all these people who are asking me about this stuff and I can't sit down individually with all these people, but I could create something and put it out there that might mm. reach people on mass, which in 2005, there were probably like 20 people listening to podcasts, right? <laughs> but I could reach you know 18 of those 20 people. That would be great. Yeah. Um, and put it out there. And that was, a, that was an unnecessary creating project. It, there wasn't some big strategy. I, there wasn't even a website for the podcast when I launched it, because I was like, this is just, I'm just putting this out there. Yeah. Um, but it quickly took off and became something, yeah. right? Um, here's the thing though, about unnecessary creating is that a lot of times when you hit on something like, like in your case, for example, sometimes then it becomes an on-demand thing. Like your unnecessary creating turns into an on-demand thing where mm-hmm. you know, like, for me, the podcast now is a major thing because we have tons of listeners and mm-hmm. it's you know, sort of become a, a, you know, a source of, of, uh, you know, brand building and, and, uh, even revenue in, in, in some instances. Yeah. Um, so, you know, that, that no longer qualifies for me as an unnecessary creating project because it's an, it's basically one of part of my on-demand creating world now. So mm. I have to have other ways of, of creating and, you know, so that's, that's the only thing about it is that a lot of times these things will turn into commercial <laughs> projects, which is great. That's wonderful. That's a beautiful thing. But then you, yeah. you still have to go back to the well and figure out, okay, what, what else am I going to do? Because we need to have those side projects yeah. in our life. So side projects that are very important is what you're saying. Absolutely. That, that aren't yeah. in your normal, normal creative flow. That's right. Yeah. We have to have, so it's, so, you know, think about it in terms of investment, right? Um, any good financial advisor will tell you, you have to occasionally rebalance your portfolio, you know, mm-hmm. because if you have, let's say you have like 60% stocks, 40%, you know, bonds in your, you know, in your, uh, in your portfolio, sorry, this is getting really weird and, you know, <laughs> but, but, you know, That's what's going to happen is as the value of those stocks grows over time, you're going to end up with an unbalanced portfolio. You're going to have like 90% stock, 10% bonds because they're going to grow really fast, right? Mm-hmm. So you have to go back and you have to rebalance in order to mitigate the risk of that portfolio. And the yeah. same thing applies to our creative life, you know, because we're going to have side projects that are maybe say 40% of our time or whatever. And those 40% are going to turn into like 85 or 90% because they turn into commercial projects. So we have to go back and rebalance our portfolio and say, okay, I'm going to allocate a percentage of my time to projects that are exploratory, that are developing skills, things that are really inefficient Mm -hmm. in the short run that could be really effective in the long run. Mm. I think what happens is we always sacrifice effectiveness on the altar of efficiency, you know, especially when we're 
create on-demand artists. You yeah. know, when you're basically you're selling projects, you're selling time, whatever it is you're doing, you know, you, you want to be as efficient as you can. And so we sacrifice some of those little white space things that actually mm. enable us to be brilliant at what we do um, so that we can be a little bit more efficient now. So we have yeah. to be careful to rebalance that portfolio. Yeah, because it's almost like once something becomes commercialized, it, you you get settled into comfortable comfortable and Absolutely. you're not yeah. being uncomfortable. You're not pushing yourself. That's right. Yeah. And, and that, you know, <laughs> what is scary at first becomes normal. You mm-hmm. know, we, we adapt as humans. We're, we're brilliant at adapting to our environment. I mean, you look at what's going on with, you know, the environment now and, you know, global warming, all this stuff. And people are talking about, oh, you know, just, you know, I'll wear, you know, tank tops instead of, you know, long sleeve shirts, you know, all, yeah. you know, whatever. Is it? I mean, people <laughs> are like adapting to this idea of, you know, oh, you know, guess what? By the way, you know, cities are going to be wiped off the face of the planet. Well, you know, we'll adapt. It's fine. No, this is, you know, yeah. um, humans are great at adapting to, to things. And so same thing with comfort, right? I mean, we, something that's really uncomfortable for us, you know, we're lifting weights. We're trying to lift, you know, a certain amount of weight and then, you know, we get really, mm-hmm. really comfortable with it. Well, if we just keep lifting that same amount of weight, you know, we're not going to progress because mm-hmm. our body has adapted to that weight and now we've built muscle and now it's easier for us. We have to keep adding weight and adding weight and adding weight yeah. um, over the course of time. It's the same way with stretching ourselves creatively. Yeah. So how can, how can one stretch themselves creatively within their own craft? Because I actually just was chatting with this photographer. He emailed me and he's been doing it for years. He's been doing photography for years and he's older and he's just in this space where he's just like, I, I'm so stuck in my default. How do I, how do I push out of that and expand? Yeah. So, um, you know, in the, in the new book, I write about this sort of process of growth, right. Mm-hmm. Of, of creative growth. And it's something I've been talking about for a long time, um, mm-hmm. on the podcast and in other places. I've kind of hinted at it in the other books as well, but I've never really put it in any of the books. I talk about this process of emulation, divergence, and crisis. And I think mm. what you're describing is somebody who's kind of at a place of crisis where mm. they, they're, they're stuck. They feel like, hey, everybody's happy with what I'm doing. I mean, nobody's complaining about my work. Everybody's, you know, because I kind of have my thing. And so everybody's, you know, perfectly content. They're, I'm doing what they're paying me to do, basically. Mm. But personally, I know that I'm stuck. I know creatively I'm stuck. I know I, I've, I've hit a barrier and I need to keep growing, but I don't know how to do that. And so what I recommend to people is they have to go back to the beginning of the growth curve process. And mm. a big chunk of that is figuring out who are the people that are inspiring you right now? Maybe it's somebody in your field. So maybe there's another photographer who's doing something that just completely blows your mind. And you're like, well, I could never do that. That's not who I am. Uh, or I don't even know how they do that. Mm. I have no clue what technique they're using to make that happen. And so go back to the beginning of that process and say, I am going to emulate that photographer, not for your clients, right? Because that would be blatantly ripping off somebody else, which is, I think, a different, it's an entirely different thing. But for your own growth, right? Go back, emulate, do some side projects, try to figure out how they're doing it, experiment, do some things that are technically bad, right? Do some things that are Mm. technically scary to you. Do things that, you know, you've been told over time, these are things photographers should never do. Um, (laughs) Go to the places that people are afraid to go as photographers and try new things. The same for Mm. writers, right? Like, um, you know, there, there's a mode, sort of a cadence that writers fall into and, and they kind of get into this mode of writing that they know is going to be productive for them. And so what I tell writers is go write something that you know is terrible grammatically. Uh, the mm. ideas probably aren't sound, you know, but just go and free write and explore and just you know, push yourself to the point of discomfort. Mm. Um, so, but that's the only, or emulate somebody who's doing that. Go out and try to be somebody that, you know, you admire and just emulate their writing style and write yeah. like them. And 
you know, that's how we, by emulating, that's how we develop new skills. Mm -hmm. And then we can incorporate those into our own work. So it's not like you're going to go out and all of a sudden now you're doing work in the form of one of your heroes for clients, because that would be weird, but you can take what you learned from that process Mm -hmm. and apply it to your own work. Apply, you'll probably stumble on some new hybrid technique that you didn't have before because you're pushing yourself outside of your comfort zone. And and this is what, so this is not just true for art. This is true in business. I mean, I work with a lot of corporate clients. I tell Mm. them, listen, your greatest enemy is your success because you are Ooh. so comfortable with where you are. You're so comfortable with your methods, with your systems. Um, mm. There's so much margin because you're so successful that you're not hungry anymore. Yeah. You're not, there's, there's, you're, you're not doing the things that got you to where you are today. Yeah. Um, you've stopped innovating. You've stopped taking new ground. You're just protecting the ground you've already taken. And mm. that's what happens. Artists, companies, they, they stop taking new ground and they start protecting the ground they've already taken. And when that happens, it's the beginning of the end. Ooh, that's powerful. I've experienced that in my own life. So that's why I'm like, same here. Yeah, that. exactly. Yeah. <laughs> By the way, everything I'm saying is, is from personal experience and truth. And, you know, I mean, I think we, we've all been guilty of that, right? Yeah. It's so easy. I mean, relationships, you know, I mean, we're not going there with this conversation, but relationships, like it's so easy to become stagnant and comfortable in relationships mm-hmm. because you know, that person will always be there. And so you, you start to take things for granted and that's how relationships mm-hmm. begin to devolve yeah. over time. It's the same, you know, col- collaborative relationships, same thing, right? You make yeah. assumptions and you live with these fossilized assumptions. Um, so, you know, we have to be in a mode of continually taking new ground, reinventing, experimenting if we want to keep growing. Absolutely. Absolutely. And then, so the, th- the third one was divergence um, of the process. Right. Can you tell us a little bit more about divergence? Yeah. So we, in the, in the growth process, um, you know, let's say, for example, let's go back, let's say uh, somebody's trying to learn how to play guitar, right? Because it's kind of near and dear to my heart. It's kind of, I, you know, kind of steeped in the music <laughs> business, right? So, um, you know, the first thing you do is you sit down and you listen to Eric Clapton or whoever playing on the radio and you try to emulate what they're doing. I mean, that's kind of, that's how people learn how to play guitar. And my son right now is learning how to play guitar and he loves the Beatles. He's 12, right? Loves the Beatles. And so he's going through their back catalog and like listening to songs, listening to the kinks and, and sort of emulating mm-hmm. their songs. And that's kind of what he does, which is really cool. Um, but at some point he's going to reach kind of the, the limit of where emulation can take him. Right. Mm-hmm. And it's sort of, you can't be in cover band mode forever. If you want to grow as an artist, you have to branch out. You have to try mm-hmm. new things. And so emulation is all about building a platform of expression, building the basic skills you need in order to be able to, to do your craft. So uh, that's why when you walk by a guitar store, you hear da, 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 right? <laughs> These are people who are emulating, they're annoyingly emulating. That's what they're doing, right? right? right. Uh, they're building the basic platform for expression. But at some point, at some point, emulation is not enough. Now, I'm sure you, Nick, probably developed your craft as a photographer by emulating other people, right? Like you wa- you looked at people Absolutely. who you admired and you tried to copy their style. I mean, another photographer friend of mine, Jonathan Robert Willis, um, we call him John Bob, um, <laughs> did that with, with a photographer um, in Cincinnati, Michael Wilson, um, who's this brilliant photographer, uses light in these really innovative, cool ways and sort of emulated him at the beginning. He told me that at some point he had to move beyond that because mm-hmm. otherwise he was just basically copying his hero, right? Right. Um, and so at some point we have to diverge, which means we take all of the skills we learn during emulation phase and we begin to take little risks with our mm-hmm. work. We begin to branch out and experiment uh, we begin to find our own voice. So yeah. if if emulation is sailing parallel to the shoreline, divergence is about sailing perpendicular to the shoreline. It's about pushing out into those uncomfortable mm. places. But here's the thing. 
a lot of people want to start the growth process in divergence. They, they want to pick up the guitar and rip off a Jimi <laughs> Hendrix you know, lick. And they, they think, well, if, if I can't do that, I must just not be good. I'm not talented, right? As a musician or whatever, which is ridiculous to think that that's the case. Um, no, you build your platform through emulation, through regular practice, through you know, repetition. Mm. And then at some point you begin taking risks and trying new things. And maybe you, you know, experiment with different sounds, you experiment with different scales. You know, if you're a guitarist, you're, you know, you're making a lot of mistakes, but you're stumbling out into that awkward place where you're kind of finding your own style, your own voice. And what happens a lot of times in divergence is that we, we sometimes maybe even begin to resent our heroes, resent the people that we've been emulating. Because every time we see some of their influence crop up in our own work, we're like, ah, no, I want to, I want to move beyond that. Right. Yeah. Um, and that's part of growth as well. It's not just defining what you want to be, but defining what you no longer want to be. It's, it's recognizing yeah. the place you're moving away from as well as the place you're moving toward, um, as, as an artist. And that's great. And usually divergence is the really contributive part of people's careers mm. because they've, they've carved out a unique niche and people are like, wow, this is really unique what you're doing as a writer, as a designer, as, you yeah. know, as a photographer. But at some point we hit crisis phase, which is when you realize, okay, everybody's happy with what I'm doing. That's fine. Um, nobody's complaining. I'm delivering. They're paying me. Everything's fine. I'm paying the bills. But personally, I recognize I'm no longer satisfied with where I am as an artist. I'm not growing anymore. Um, I've, I've become stale. Yeah. And the best and the brightest among us, Nick, recognize that when you hit that point, that's when you have to go back through that reinvention phase. That's when you have to go back and find other sources of inspiration, begin emulating, trying new things, experimenting, and then applying those to your process as you diverge. If you don't, if you stay in crisis mode, and we talked about this earlier, you'll eventually go down the backside of the curve because if you're not growing, you're dying. Right. So you have to have those intentional mechanisms of emulation, pulling new things into your process, developing new skills and applying them. Uh, if And it's not, it's not linear. It's not neat. It's not like, oh, these are the rules of how you grow. Um, but these are tendencies, right? These are patterns that you see in seasons Absolutely. along the way. Absolutely. So what are, what are some questions we can ask ourselves to identify if we are in crisis mode? Uh, am I, do I feel like I am compromising myself as an artist right now? Do I mm. feel like I'm stuck uh, when was the last time I did something, a, a project I was really excited about? And if the answer mm. is three or four or five projects ago, okay, maybe, maybe, maybe you're stuck. Maybe you just need to, you know, get off your duff and actually do something. <laughs> but, but it could be that maybe you're stuck. Maybe you feel like you, you know, you've kind of hit an impasse and you need some new inspiration. You need to develop some new skills. Mm. Um, am I seeing too much of my mentors slash heroes in the work that I'm doing, mm. right? Because if that's the case, maybe you're resorting back to old habits, um, old techniques, and you're not continuing mm. to push yourself creatively. Um, are you satisfied with the work you're doing? I think that in and of itself, and there's a difference between being, between being at a place where you recognize I could do better and being dissatisfied with mm. your work, right? Um, yeah. You can be satisfied with your work and, and, and not be satisfied with the trajectory of your work in general. Right. Um, these are, these are different things. So you can say, yes, I, I'm fine with how this came to be given my constraints, given the resources available, whatever. Um, but I'm not satisfied with my trajectory as an artist right mm -hmm. now. Those are sometimes different things. Yeah. So I think any of those questions kind of point to the possibility that you're allowing yourself to, to settle in a bit. Yeah, those are great. And I noticed for myself, I asked those questions, right. But most of like, I think when it comes down to, I'm not always getting hired for, you know, like getting paid for the work that I want, 
that I, that I resonates with me the most, but then I just go out and create my own work that does resonate with me. Yeah. So I think there's a balance there and I, you know, for me, it's about kind of moving the ship and the brand and the direction that I'm getting hired for work that really resonates with me Yeah, and who I am. And, and I think, I think there are kind of three questions and this just popped into my brain. So I may get this wrong. Um, but this, this seems right to me. So I'm going to yeah. say it, even though it just popped into my brain right now as we're speaking, <laughs> I think there are kind of three questions. And I, I, I ask each of these three questions when I was launching my thing, right? Um, the first one is, will this work? I think at the beginning of any venture, if you're a creative entrepreneur, I think you're asking, will this work? Can I make this work? And then I think once you get to a point where you realize, okay, this is going to work. I'm actually, I'm getting clients. This is great. This is, you know, then I think you start asking, will this thrive? You know, mm. could I actually make this something more than just a way to pay my bills? Like, could this, could this be the beginning of something really cool and really big? Is there momentum here? And then I think at some point, once you answer the question, yeah, it's going to thrive. You start asking the question, will this matter? Mm. You know, um, because you can thrive and your work cannot matter a lick in the grand scheme of things if you're compromising your values, if you're compromising who you are. And I think the question, will this matter, is closely tied to your commitment to continue growing as an artist. Mm. Um, the, the mark that you make on the world, the mark that you make in the marketplace, and whatever, however you define that, right, I think is largely tied to your willingness to continue pushing into those uncomfortable places. Mm. Um, so the answer to will this matter I think the answer is it depends. Yeah. It depends on whether you're going to continue doing what it takes to make your work matter, which means reinventing yourself, not getting stuck mm. in a niche. And that we all want to be known for something. And the moment we're known for it, we don't want to be known for it anymore. Right. Because we exactly. want to keep, you know, um, because we don't want to get stuck there. Yeah. That's funny. I, I, so I interviewed Usher like a few weeks, a few months ago and the biggest, it's a pretty good interview you'll get. Right. <laughs> yeah. yeah you know. that's not bad. The biggest thing that stuck out to me that he said was evolve or evaporate. Mm. Wow. He, that's great. And it, it goes exactly with what you're saying. That's, and that's really profound. Really yeah. powerful. So I want to jump back, you know, let's talk about the book a little bit more. Okay. Louder Than Words is the new book coming out and it's about to harness the power of your authentic voice. And let's jump back to something you said a little bit earlier. Um, we talked, we were talking about creating from the inside and creating your identity and not letting your, the outside create your identity for yeah. you. So how do you discover your voice from the inside out? Yeah, that's, it's really tricky, right? Because there, there's a, there's a sort of a yin and a yang to that, which is that we understand who we are by how others receive us in the world, but we can't be defined by however others receive us if we want to create work that matters. Yeah. So, you know, a lot of people say, well, I'm going to be me and you know, you should just accept me for who I am. Well, that I think is a very short sighted, um, way to approach the world because people, don't have your perspective. They don't, they're not seeing the world through your eyes. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and the world is inherently a, rel a relatively, uh, unempathetic place mm -hmm. in general. Um, you have to create from a place that allows people to have easy inroads to what you're doing. You know, uh, there's some overlap there. Um, um and I, I am by the way, getting around to, to answering your question. Uh, one of the stories I told in the book is, uh, I came across a video on YouTube of LL Cool J when he was first starting, um, starting out in his career. And this was before radio was released. So, yeah. you know, he wasn't really, I mean, he's kind of known in hip hop circles, but he wasn't really known, mm -hmm. uh, by the broad public. And he was, I think he was in Maine or someplace. He was doing this concert at a, at a high school 
And you could tell, I mean, all these kids were kind of there for this assembly and like none of them wanted to be, it was kind of like, okay, great. The grownups told us we had to come to this assembly, you know, and the, you know, the guy getting up to introduce him said, ladies and gentlemen, please make welcome Mr. LL Cool J, right? It's a totally <laughs> awkward. And, and so all of a sudden the DJ starts playing, you know, this beat and he starts saying, okay, now what he's doing right there, it's called scratching, right? And he's, and he's explaining to them what this music is and what it means. And uh, he said, now what I'm going to do is I'm, I'm going to start rapping. When I do that, I'm going to be, you know, I'm going to be um, saying these lyrics and here's kind of how it goes and here's how we're going to interact with each other. And he's kind of like creating this common ground with this audience, you know? Mm-hmm. And so I think the role of the artist in general is to create common ground with the audience without an Mm. audience there is no art you know if we're just making for ourselves there is no art so i think Mm. what we have to do is we have to begin with the question what common ground do i want to create with people that's the beginning of sourcing your identity is understanding Mm. what is the common ground that i feel compelled to create and and what are some of the qualities of that Mm. Um, and part of that is defining what are the battles that i i feel called to fight right as an artist because we all fight battles i mean art is an expression of a point of view. You know, if there's no point of view mm. um, to your art, then, I mean, you have to ask, is it really expression? You know, yeah. um, you're not really expressing your voice. So I think it begins with that question. What is the common ground I want to create and how can I create a space for interaction with others? That's what voice is. It's the expression through a medium to achieve an impact, mm. right? So your expression is what you care about, your identity. You know, the medium is your platform or, you know, the, the medium that you're choosing. And then the impact is that in, in that common ground, what is the response that I hope to generate mm. with that art? And I think you have to, when you create something, you have to begin with that question, right? you know, is, is what is that common space I want to create? And then what does that mean for me personally in terms of how I how I, um, I, I act. And so I talk, you know, in the book, I talk about writing a manifesto, which sounds, you know, to a lot of people are like, what, what, you know, I'm a photographer, I'm a designer, I'm a, you know, I'm a yeah. writer. Why would I write a manifesto? Well, because you need to codify your beliefs, you know, you need to codify what you're going to stand mm. for. And listen, those might be fluid. They might change from time to time. That's fine. But if you want to talk about identity and who are you, which is really what the question identity is about, yeah. It's answering the question, who are you? You have to begin with a set of codified beliefs that forge the platform for your expression, right? right. Um, this is what I stand for. This is what I believe. And this is what will take root in my art. Mm. Um, this is this is how my expression will be will be informed. Yeah, yeah. Wow. That's, does that answer your question? I, I, don't, <laughs> I kind of went a long way around it. So Yeah, no, it totally does. And I think, you know, that's, uh, it's it's powerful because your voice is, is, your perspective, it's your point of view. It's the way that you see the world. And right. I remember going through the process, you know, especially when I was listening to you and, and, and reading your content when I was first starting, it was like this exploration of like, okay, A, what is your voice? You know, when you're starting out in a creative world, what what is your voice? Right. Uh, like, how would you describe what your voice is? Yeah, I, I well, I, it's, it's like an infant, right? An mm-hmm. infant learns their voice by mimicking the sounds that they hear coming from their parent. And you even see that a lot of the research shows that when infants start crying, infants from different cultures around the world cry with a different accent. So you hear German babies crying with a a different accent than, Hmm. um, you know, Danish babies, than you know, babies in the U S because they're, they're crying, they're imitating their parents and their early sounds are imitating what they're hearing. I mean, nobody comes out of the womb, speaking in full sentences, except for Stewie from Family Guy, right? And nobody else <laughs> does that. And so 
you know, I think when you're first starting out, I think what you're doing is you're, you're finding your voice. You're developing mm -hmm. that. I, I, let me walk that back because I don't believe in the phrase finding your voice because I think it implies that it's a, uh, it's something you do once. And then once you find it, then it's forever and always found. And I don't think that's the case. I think it's more a matter of developing your voice over time. Mm. So I think it's, it's not something that you, that you just discover. Um, it's something that you, you develop over time. And in the book, I tried really hard to stamp out any language that implied like finding your voice. Um, mm. so I think when you're doing that at the beginning, I think it is all about experimentation. It's about what resonates with mm. you. You know, what, what is it that you connect with deeply as you look at the work of your heroes? What is it about those people that really resonates with you? What is it that brings you to life? You know, and, uh, yeah. when I was learning how to play piano, I mean, I, I remember, you know, in my early days of learning how to play piano when I was a kid, you know, I took lessons mm -hmm. and I was, you know, dum ba dum ba dum ba dum, you know, and all this. And then one day my dad said, Hey, I want you to listen to this guy named Jerry Lee Lewis. Jerry Lee Lewis. Well, he's like a guy from the 1950s. I'm like, oh, dad, come on, man. You know, <laughs> this is like, you know, long time. I mean, I'm old, but I'm not that old, right? Right. Um, and he started playing this music of, you know, this great balls of fire and a whole lot of shaking and all this stuff. And this guy's playing all this boogie woogie left hand, you know, don't, but don't, but don't, but don't, but don't. And I'm like, man, something in me came alive when I heard that. And I'm like, that's what I want to do. That's mm -hmm. what I want to play. And I yeah. started like emulating Jerry Lee Lewis and started getting that kind of boogie vibe and moved into like New Orleans stuff and moved in, you know, but that was the catalyst for me because it helped me develop my voice as a, as a pianist, as somebody, you know, as a music lover yeah. uh, when I heard that. And I think finding, you know, sort of finding that those early tidbits of inspiration is really important. Like having those, mm. that, those poles that you're kind of navigating toward. Yeah. Right. So I think that's really the, the earliest stages of developing your voice is figuring out what resonates deeply with you and then sort of gravitating toward that and emulating mm. that as you're building your platform of expression. I like that. I like that. Okay. So now how do we go from developing your voice to harnessing your voice? Yeah. So there, there are kind of three core things that I talk about in the book. The first, and we already kind of touched on is identity. There are three, three elements to any effective resonant voice. The first is identity, understanding who are you and, and you know, what resonates with you and what do you care about? And you know, uh, what are the tenets of your expression, so to speak? The second is vision. And vision is about how you're shaping your work. It's about defining your intended audience. You know, again, we talked about how art without an audience really isn't, I mean, mm -hmm. you've asked the question, is it really art? You know, if, if there's no audience for it, because, you know, and people may disagree with this, but I believe that the, the function of art is to in some way inspire a response in an audience, you know, and that may not be the response you want, but you're trying to, you're trying to evoke something, not provoke, but you're trying to evoke something from the mm. audience. Um, and a big part of that is, well, the big part of that is vision. It's defining and shaping your work so that it connects with that audience. And so you have to, you can't just settle with, well, this is who I am. And so I'm just going to make things. You also have to understand, <laughs> you know, who is your audience yeah. and what, how are, how can you build that common ground with them? And that's really, so you have to have vision um, is the next thing. And then finally, I talked about mastery. Because, it, you know, if you have identity and you have vision, but you don't have mastery, you're not going to be credible. Nobody's going to listen to you, right? So you can go out and you can, you can take the most, you know, personally inspired photographs in the world, Nick, and you can have a vision for the people that you're going to reach with your photography. And if your technique is terrible, if, if you're awful as a photographer, nobody's going to pay attention to you. You, you, <laughs> right. you have no credibility. Same, same with me, like as, as, a, as an author, right? If I'm writing books and I'm really inspired and, and, you know, I have a vision for my audience, but my writing is 
you know, kindergarten level, nobody's going to read what I have to say. You know, I also have to take the craft seriously. And so mastery is the third element, which is about mastering your craft and having mm. a set of practices in your life that continue on that growth curve, mm. right? That, that push you to, to veer into those uncomfortable places. So I talk about things like staying in game shape, having a set of daily practices in your life yeah. that continue um, to, to force you to, to step out of your comfort zone, you know, mm. things, things of that nature. So identity, vision, mastery are kind of the three elements of resonant voices. And you, you find this in the lives of brilliant contributors all yeah. over the place, right? I mean, it's kind of their, their, their story. Yeah. Um, so yeah. I love how you bring all this stuff together because it's stuff that I've like completely thought about, but it's like you articulate it so well. It's really great. I appreciate Thank that. Thank you. I appreciate it. Well, that, you know, I, frankly, I mean, that's kind of part of a big part of my art is, recognizing you know, patterns, kind of seeing things that are going on, right? And sort mm -hmm. of putting that out in front of people and saying, hey, this seems to be what's happening here. Um, this seems to be what the research is supporting. Yeah. Um, and here's kind of what we can do about it. Uh, so so thank you. That, that means a lot. Yeah, yeah. Now in, in chapter five, section one, paragraph three, line <laughs> six, just kidding. <laughs> Thank you. Not going to go there. But yes, in chapter five. I was, I, was tell, I was telling Nick on the way in, I'm like, I was rereading my book on in the car on the way from the airport because I'm like, what now what did I write again? Because the funny thing about writing books is that, you know, I, I wrote, I mean, I was finished writing this book months and months and months ago, right? And so the book isn't even out yet as we're doing this interview. And yet now I'm starting to kind of ramp up and do interviews about it. And I'm like, okay, what? So did I write that in this book or was it the book before? Is that something I'm working on, you know, outside of this? It's kind right, of this weird right. thing. So anyway. <laughs> that was great. I had, I had to tease you about that. <laughs> but anyways, in chapter five, you know, you talk about um, for your voice to resonate. We, we were just talking about this. Your vision is, uh, it must center on the audience that you're trying to impact. So yeah. The first question is, how do you identify your audience? Let's, let's go there first. Yeah, well, again, it depends on the impact you want to have, mm -hmm. right? So I, like my, I was sort of informally quipped that I'm an arms dealer for the creative revolution, right? That's kind mm -hmm. of my, my sort of little buzz phrase that I use. But the reason I say that is because I am trying to reach create on-demand professionals, people who have to go to work, who have to make it up every day, who have to you know, solve problems, who have to invent, who have to design, who have to write. And every single day, mm -hmm. they know they're going to go back and they have to crank out more brilliant work in order to keep their job. Thank you very much, right? That's, those are the people I'm trying to reach. Everything I do is, is defined by the needs of that audience and what I see going on with that audience. You know, So it's sort of where my passion intersects with their needs. That's kind of the thing. So mm -hmm. What I would ask is, I mean, you sort of have to walk that back and say, okay, what impact do I want to create in the world, mm. right? Like, what is it that I'm trying to do with my with my art? What is the the what needle am I trying to move, so to speak? And I think that's a big part of defining that audience. Yeah. Um, so Stephen King, I wrote about Stephen King in this uh, book. He he always talks about his uh, intended reader. Um, or ideal reader. I can't it was intended or ideal. I mean, it was ideal reader. Um, he has a very specific person in mind when he's creating his, his books. I did the same thing for all three of my books. I had a, not, not a psychographic, not a demographic. I had a specific person in mind mm. when I wrote all three of the books. And every single one of my books is written from the perspective of me sitting down, talking to the other person and explaining mm. these concepts to them. Um, and it was a different person, by the way, for, for each book. It wasn't the same person, um, which would be kind of a little bit weird. It'd be kind of creepy and stalkerish if it was the same person. But it's, it is a different person for each book. But I think when you're doing your art, and, and it might be different in different circumstances, when you're doing your art, think, who am I trying to reach with this? And how can I move that person? You know, And we you know, talk about muses and inspiration and stuff like that. 
draw from that as mm-hmm. you're creating, you know, think about who am I really trying to connect with? Yeah. Um, and, and how do I, how do I want to move them? And that really, I think is your intended audience. And, and I think the, the, the mistake a lot of people make is that they make it too broad. You know, they try to reach too many people. Um, mm-hmm. they, they lack definition. Um, and you're, you're not going to be effective if you're just creating art for everybody you have right. to create for, and now you might, everybody else might get folded into it. You know, it's not to say that you won't reach everybody, but if you try to create for everybody, you'll probably reach no one. Mm-hmm. And again, we, we've heard these things before, but it's, it's applying them that is really challenging, especially yeah. when there's money and commerce involved. Yeah. So. Now, the other question that plays off of that is like, how do you remain authentic when catering to an audience? Or how do you not cater to an audience, but cater to an audience, but stay authentic to who you are? You know, right. and there's like this whole balance that we're talking about. Right. Because- and, and that's really, I think that's about, that's where vision, the rubber meets the road for vision, because vision is about answering the question, where am I going? Mm-hmm. Right. So with your art, where are you going and where are you leading your audience? So it's not just about catering to your audience. It's about meeting them where they are and then leading mm. them where you want them to go. Mm. which is a completely different thing. So one of my friends uh, I interviewed for, for the book is a DJ named Z trip and um, brilliant guy, amazing guy. Um, so talented. And he was kind of talking about how um, he found his voice. I mean, he, he grew up, his parents got divorced. His dad, I think lived in Brooklyn. His mom lived in Phoenix or maybe it was vice versa. I can't remember. Maybe it was dad, yeah, it's dad in Brooklyn, mom in Phoenix. So he would go back and forth between these worlds of like hip hop music, you know, when he was in Brooklyn and kind of, in the, it was kind of the early days, kind of the seeds of, you know, kind of rudimentary hip hop were happening, you know, it's kind yeah. of cool. And he would go back to Phoenix and all his friends would be listening to like, you know, heavy metal and, you know, all this, you know, like rock stuff. And so he would kind of go back and forth between these worlds and he would, when he would get together and he started DJing at parties and stuff, he was like, well, I want to introduce my my rap, my hip hop friends to rock, but I also want to introduce my rock friends to hip hop. So he started Mm. kind of mashing these things together Mm. and as a way to kind of introduce his friends because he had his intended audience, but he was trying to lead them to a place where they would be music lovers of all genres, right? And so he sort of inadvertently became, you know, kind of a leading, uh, leading, um, uh, artist in this mashup movement, you know, um, among DJs and became really popular because he sort of defined this, this space, but it all began for him with asking the question, who am I trying to reach and where am I trying to take, take them? I want mm. them to see my love transcends all genres. And I can actually pull all of these things together to create something new that will actually take us all to a new place. Mm. So I think that's what we have to begin with as artists. That's great. I never thought about it in, in the sense of like resonating and then taking, taking the lead. With your art, that's great. Yeah, well, and and we we know it's so easy to see when artists miss that curve and they start mm-hmm. pandering, right? When they're maybe it's like a music artist and their first album is brilliant, and the second album that you know the first album you have your whole life to write, the second album you have like six months on in a tin can with a bunch of sweaty people, right, to write, <laughs> um, and then you have to go in the studio and record it, and it's kind of easy to see when bands have a vision for their work and their, their second album takes them to a new place or when a band is being defined by what their audience really loved about that first record. And they just try to remake the first record again. Yeah. And it, it just doesn't resonate because they have no vision. And mm-hmm. it's, it's pretty easy to see that when it happens and, yeah. and bands miss the curve all the time. Photographers miss the curve. Following up success is one of the most difficult things in the world to do because it, it often means abandoning the very things that led to your initial success. Um, and that's a really Ooh. courageous thing to do. Um, and, and many people don't have the, don't have the fortitude to do that. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> how do you, how do you let that go? 
Like, how do you, <laughs> how do you do that? Is the question. I, I think the key is to know what to let go of and what not to let go of. And that gets back to knowing your audience and understanding how you build common ground and where you want to lead them. So it doesn't mean, you know, oh, I came out with a great rock record. So now I'm going to make a hip hop record because I don't want to do what led me to, you know, it's not that <laughs> right, you have to right, have a right. sense of who you are. That's why that balance between identity, vision, and mastery are all, it's that, it's that delicate balance because you have to understand who you are, but it's also about who your audience is, the vision that you have for them and where you want to lead them. Right. So it's that intersection of those things. So, you know, you don't abandon everything. You have tenants that were baked into that initial project that made you successful, but you have to ask, how does that now translate to where I want to take my audience, where I mm. want them to go next and not just fall back to the same old sort of tried and true methods that led to where I am, but instead, mm. how can I translate those to take new ground instead of just protecting the ground I've already taken? Yeah. Wow. That's great. <laughs> I love that. Now, it's, it's interesting because I, I, I noticed from my own self, you know, my voice is, I feel like it's becoming more, it's, it's become stronger over the last few years. And I remember when I started out, it was kind of about having a vision for what I wanted to do and then create it. Like it, then it was about style, like creating a, a visual style of my work. And then it moved on to now it's, now it's becoming more of uh, creating a point of view Yeah. and creating a point of view. Now that you say it's like creating a point of view that you want to share with other people and lead them into the same point of view. Yeah. Um, is that, is that something that I don't even know where I'm going with this, but <laughs> how that plays into your, your formula? That sounds like growth to me. I mean, it sounds like you are, I mean, success comes in layers and, mm -hmm. and vocal develop, voice development comes in layers, right? Mm -hmm. Um, you learn little pieces over time and they layer onto one another and you're right. It becomes stronger because there are more layers there. It's like if you take a mm. thread and you just pull on the thread, you could probably pop it. But then if you weave a bunch of them together, they become stronger. Um, and that's how your voice develops as well. It's little threads that get woven together and then it becomes a rope and it's yeah. really difficult to, to break. And that's what you're, I think you're describing, which is you're coming to a knowledge of yourself, a knowledge of your audience, of the impact you want to have in the world. You're developing your skills at the same time mm -hmm. and you're just layering thread upon thread upon thread and it just becomes a stronger rope, yeah. you know, it's, and, and um, it's more substantive, Got it. you know, it's not wispy. Uh, and I think a lot of voices, you know, they, they don't have that depth. Um, they're not coming from, uh, you know, a deep reservoir. There's no quiet fire burning beneath the surface of the artist's life. You know, it's mm -hmm. just sort of whatever's on the surface, that's who I am. Yeah. Whatever's going to resonate with the audience today, that's who I want to be. Um, and those are the people that, that come and go. And quite frankly, people who have that deep, quiet fire burning beneath the surface, they're not always the ones who are massively successful. They're not the ones who are out there, you know, achieving public acclaim. Um, but they're consistent, they're steady, they're growing mm -hmm. over time and yeah. they, their influence grows over time. And so you have to ask the question, do I want attention or do I want influence? And those mm. often don't come together. You know, those often grow separate from one another. And so people who get a lot of attention dry out on the plane, people who grow in influence over the time because they're maturing, they're deepening, they're, they're building something of substance. Mm -hmm. um, those are the people that are going to be talked about in 15, 20, 30 years. And frankly, that's the path I want to take. Even if it means you know, for me, I'm writing books, I'm doing anything. If I sell fewer books, that's fine. As long as the right people are reading the book and being mm -hmm. influenced by it, which for me, that's the most gratifying thing in the world is when influencers contact me and say, your book has had a profound impact influence in my life. Mm great, you know, and be an influencer of influencers. That yeah. to me is 
worth far more than selling however many copies of a book. So. Wow, that's great. Well, I can say your work has influenced me. Oh, thanks, man. And I really appreciate that. So now how do you take, you know, take, take those threads, those DNAs, that point of view, how do you weave that into a manifesto? Because you talk about manifesto in your book. We just ch- talked a little bit about it, but how do you yeah. take that and translate that into a manifesto? Yeah, and, and I want to be careful not to imply that um, this is the absolute method for, you know, because, <laughs> and I, you're not implying that yeah, either, yeah, but... Yeah. But here's the thing, we can get really busy with busy work and it can distract us from doing the actual work. So um, I would never in a million years imply before you do anything else, stop and write a manifesto, right? Um, Look at the clues in your own life. When have you been especially resonant? Uh, what has resonated with you deeply? What are the things that you care so deeply about that you say, not on my watch? Nobody is crossing this line on my watch. This is a battle line I am drawing, Mm -hmm. right? Um, This is something that that matters so much to me that I'm I'm never willing to compromise this, period, forever and always, amen. I'm not compromising on this principle. Mm -hmm. Those are the kinds of things that should work their way into some kind of written manifesto. And by the way, the manifesto isn't for publication. It's not like, okay, write this and put it on your website because the first thing that's going to happen is you can start wordsmithing and crafting, you know, well, what's going to look good to people? What's going to get me more mm. clients, right? Um, there are going to be all those subtle things. This is just for you. Mm. Uh, it may never see the light of day publicly, um, nor should it see the light of day publicly. Frankly, this is just for you to guide yeah. your own internal behavior to get to the bottom of it. So, mm. you know, I would ask you, what do you care about deeply? Um, you know, in your heart of hearts, what kind of work, if you, if you built a body of work that did this thing, this was what it did. This is the influence it had. You could lay your head down at the end of your life satisfied with what you had done. Mm. That's the kind of stuff that should end up in your manifesto. Um, because frankly, we're all going to do that, Nick, at some point we're going to point to a body of work and we're going to ask, does that represent me or does that represent everybody around me? Does that represent my clients wishes and hopes and dreams? Or does that represent what I really care about? Mm. What I really believe to be valuable? We're all going to ask that question. So, yeah, absolutely. Well, a couple more questions here. Um, what are the top three things that you would the advice and tr- or truths that you would give your 20 year old self. <laughs> I just wrote about this recently. Actually really? I did. I wrote a blog post called three pieces of advice I would give to my 21 year old self that I still remind my 42 year old self of every day. <laughs> Perfect. I, I for real. And, and now I'm on the spot cause I have to remember exactly what they were, uh, which is terrible. Uh, the first one is know what you're building. Mm. Um, you know, I think a lot of 20 somethings, um, and this is, by the way, this is just part of a function, the function of being in your twenties, right? Mm-hmm. You don't know who you are. You're trying to figure out who you are. Um, and so it's tempting to kind of bounce from thing to thing to thing and take opportunities as they come and, oh, a new opportunity came along. So I'm going to take it cause it's more money or it's more whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, I think you have to have at least a general sense of what you're trying to build, what you want to build, where you want your work to go. It doesn't mean you, you know where you're going to end up. I had no clue I'd be writing books when I was 20 something years. I mean, no, no, I thought I was going to be a musician for the rest of my life. Right. Cause that's kind of where I started out. That, that's what I was going to do for the rest of my life. Um, not even close, but, um, you, you have to have at least a general sense of, of what you're trying to build. So it gives you a framework for making decisions. So maybe it's best to turn down that job or that client or that whatever, that opportunity to move to a different place, because it, it isn't a part of what you see, mm-hmm. you know, happening. Now, maybe it's an opportunity that, you know, wow, I didn't consider this. Maybe it is 
part of that. But you you need a framework for making decisions when you're mm. in your 20s, yeah. right? That That is pointing you toward some kind of North Star. Um, you don't have to have it figured out, but you have to have some framework for making decisions. Um, a second one was go to school every day, right? Um, mm. Every single day you should be learning, you should be developing yourself, um, you know, doing something that stretches you, pushes you out of your comfort zone, commune with great minds, as Stephen Sample from USC calls it, right? Mm. Like immerse yourself in the great thoughts of others, the great work of other people, yeah. and do that every single day. That's the single biggest thing that's contributed to, to my ability to, to write books and to see patterns and consult and do all the things I'm doing now. Um, is that I've been going to school for 20 years on mm. uh, on the, the some of the best minds in in the world, right? Because I, I study their thoughts, I read their thoughts, I you know I'm immersing myself yeah. in them and processing them and thinking about them. Um, and the third one, this wasn't in the blog post, um, but this is a third one, just I think especially for for this crowd, um, and and that is know what you're willing to sacrifice in order to get what you think you want. Mm. Um, there are people who sacrifice things that, uh, can never be reclaimed. They can never be, um, reformed mm. in order to get what it is they think they want. And then when they get what they think they want, they find out it wasn't really what they wanted all along. And the thing that they shattered was the thing that they really needed. Mm. And so... I think it's really important to understand, to set some parameters around what you're, and this is part of knowing what you're building, but I think it's, it goes even deeper than that. Um, art is a life of sacrifice. Mm. It is. When you're making art, you're sacrificing. Um, you know, I spend, I mean, I'll just put it in terms of, you know, writing books. I mean, I spend two years working on a book. That's opportunity cost, right? Mm -hmm. Um, I could be doing lots of other things. I'm sacrificing myself. I'm sort of throwing myself on the altar um, <laughs> with the hope that this is going to pay out, pay out in, in the long run. Um, but there's no guarantee of that, right? And so, you know, art is about spending yourself on behalf of something that you care deeply about. And it doesn't matter what the economics are. It doesn't matter what the scale is. You're, you're spending mm -hmm. yourself. Yeah. Um, there's only so much of you to go around. We have focus, assets, time, and energy. Those are our only resources we have to spend, you mm -hmm. know? And so art is a, is a life of sacrifice. So know what it is you're willing to sacrifice and never make a sacrifice on behalf of someone else in order to achieve something that you want. Mm. Um, talked about my family, my, my wife, my kids. We have been able to not only survive me launching a business, but actually be in a better place than we've ever been before. Mm. Um, because we had all of those conversations before I ever, I ever launched. We said, yeah. okay, what will it take? I asked my wife, what will it take for you to feel good about how things are going? Yeah. What will it take for you to feel good about me making a leap and taking a risk? What will it take for you to, you know, and I, I think those conversations so often don't happen. It's about what I want, what I'm willing to sacrifice, yeah. but we don't think about the sacrifices we're making on behalf of others. Yeah. Um, so even if you're in your twenties, even if you're early on, there are people who are you know, dependent on you, stakeholders, other people in your life mm -hmm. in some capacity, whether it's emotional stakeholders or whatever. So it's always important to recognize the sacrifices you make as an artist mm -hmm. are not just on your own behalf. They're often on other people's behalf as well. So you need to make sure that they're, they do that gut check and they're willing to make those sacrifices Absolutely. along with you. That's great. There is nothing in this world, by the way, that is more important than your relationships and mm -hmm. the relationships that you have in your life. Absolutely. There's, there's nothing that is worth sacrificing those relationships, yeah. especially when the other person isn't complicit in that <laughs> sacrifice. 
Totally. I feel like well, that's a whole nother episode. We could it talk is. About. Absolutely. That's right. That's right. <laughs> maybe, maybe one of these days. Um, last question that I'd love to ask all my guests is what does live inspiration mean to you? Live inspiration to me means um, every day seeking, uh, every day seeking out something that scares me a little bit and gravitating mm. in the direction of, of what is scaring me a bit um, and asking what does that mean to my life, to my process. Um, there, there are, I mean, frankly, there are artists that are, there are people that I admire. Um, I'm just purely intimidated by, right. Because they're just so great at what they do. Yeah. Um, and what I've come to realize is that um, those artists all look at other artists and are completely intimidated by those other artists. And it doesn't look like it from the outside, right? Because yeah. everybody thinks, everybody thinks that everyone else has it together. Everyone thinks that everybody else is perfect yeah. in their thoughts and their, their, their expression. Uh, so I think live inspiration for me means seeking out those people who inspire me and intimidate me and being willing to step into that and, and learn from it and apply it to my process. Absolutely. Amazing. I love it. So how can we find you on the internet? Which, where should we go? Yeah. The best place to find me is toddhenry.com. It's my personal website. Mm -hmm. um, also the podcast, the accidental creative and all of that available wherever you get podcasts or at accidentalcreative.com. Amazing. And social media. Yeah. Uh, Todd Henry on Twitter, uh, Todd Henry on Instagram. Awesome. Uh, and Facebook, you can just search for me. Great. Great. Check out Todd's book, Louder Than Words. Thanks for coming on. Thanks, Nick. Appreciate it. And thanks for all the great work you're doing. Thank you. Thank you guys so much for listening to today's episode of Shop Talk Radio with Todd Henry. I'm your host, Nick Onkin. And if you enjoyed today's episode, we would love it if you could leave us a good review over on iTunes and help us spread the word and inspire even more people to listen and activate their inner creativity. We'd also love to see where you're listening to the podcast. So shoot us a photo over on Instagram. You can at reply me at Nick Onkin and hashtag Shop Talk Radio to see where you're being inspired. Also, you can tweet out the episodes on Facebook and Twitter. We would love that. And with that, we'll see you next time. Thank you.